traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, Professor Mariana Matsukato on the true economic value of things. Currently, what we're actually including in GDP, let alone what we don't include, like care or happiness indicators, what we include is quite problematic. And for those of us who didn't know they'd ever not been cool, Levi's are apparently cool again. Our hip audience members would know that Beyonce, the superstar, made a, quite a splash at Coachella wearing high-rise Levi's cut-off shorts. In terms of marketing, they've really caught a cultural moment. First, the price of cryptocurrencies has calmed down since their peak in December, but regulators around the world are still grappling on how to deal with them. Sasha Nauta, our finance correspondent, joins me in the studio. Sasha, why are regulators even worrying about these things? I mean, last year was when Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies went completely crazy, and now they've calmed down. You're absolutely right, Helen, in that Bitcoin in particular, the best known of these virtual currencies, made a, a wild crash in December, January, where it fell from nearly $20,000 per Bitcoin to 7000 At the moment, it's around 9000 So that may have given you the impression that this market is shrinking. In fact, it's actually increasing and it's growing. Two things are changing. It's, it's widening. So more new tokens, as they're called, are being issued. And at the same time, more money is being poured in. So where a year ago, the total market of virtual currencies was about 30 billion US dollars. At the moment, it's around 400 billion US dollars. So the market is very much alive and kicking. And that's what's worrying regulators. Is it just the sheer size of the market and how fast it's growing? I think lots of things worry the regulators. And it also depends on which regulator you're you're talking about. Uh, they certainly don't agree on on many things in this field. Um, I think what they are particularly worried about at the moment is not so much so-called systemic risk, so the risk to global financial stability, because it is still a relatively small market we're talking about. But what they're more worried about is things like illicit use of these things, so for crime and money laundering, tax evasion that might be happening through these currencies, but also just the simple question of should consumers be protected against some of the risks? So as, as we just mentioned, you know, they can crash very quickly. They're very volatile. But there are other risks, such as that it's simply a scam token that you're investing in, that actually it's, it's, it's simple fraud. And the question whether, again, the government or regulators should be protecting people like you and me from, from putting our savings in these, in these tokens. So my head hurts every time I try to think what Bitcoin even is. How do regulators... How do they even think of these things that seem to be rather varied and also terribly complex? What do they even think they are? Imagine having to write about it. My head is is still hurting. I think regulators, as I said before, are, are still figuring this thing out. They're figuring out the technology, but they're also figuring out the implications. And the very, very basic question of what are these things still hasn't been answered. So there's not even agreement whether they should be called 
cryptocurrencies, as a lot of people in the industry want to call them, because they hope that they can be used as a method of payment, alternative payment at some point, or whether, as central bankers prefer, you'd call them crypto assets, with which you sort of imply that there's something very different uh, from currencies. So very, very quickly going through how regulators are thinking about this stuff. I think firstly, they're looking at classification of these things. Some of these so-called tokens operate very much as a utility, for example. Others are, are classic security, so a classic investment. Others may indeed start to be operating as a currency. And that starting question will determine how you treat them, how you tax them, sticking to compliance rules, etc. So, before you've answered that simple question, you can't really go to the next levels, such as how do you deal with day-to-day -day risks, money laundering, illicit use, um, taxation, etc. The, the base question of what are these things still hasn't been answered. So very briefly, some of the big regulators, let's say the SEC in America, what's their sort of current position on these things? The SEC has been going after fraudulent tokens quite aggressively, and I think that's setting a good example for, for other regulators. Um, but secondly perhaps less helpfully, they seem to be going into the direction of saying virtually all of these tokens are securities. And that approach, that sort of blanket approach might actually stifle innovation. That's one of the fears with too much regulation, which is always the case with something new, right? You're trying to find the right balance of enough to keep out the bad stuff, but not so much that you sort of strangle innovation and that you scare away people with good ideas. And what the SEC is doing at the moment, or the direction it seems to be taking, is probably a little bit too much. Bitcoin's name was really sullied, I think, by its association with the dark web and with people buying things like pornography and weapons and things as well as drugs. Is that still the case? Is that still a big use for Bitcoin and the other cryptos? Yes, it is. Um, although actually, as the pool of cryptocurrencies has grown, the share used for the sorts of things you've just mentioned is a lot smaller than it was in the old days when it seemed like almost the majority of users uh, had, had their illicit reasons. But perhaps more interestingly is that it's not just classic cyber criminals that are using cryptocurrencies. It's actually non-cyber, normal criminals that seem to be turning to this space. And that's really worrying. So Europol, the European police agency, are quite worried that an increasing amount of criminal proceeds are being money laundered through cryptocurrencies. Um, it's still only three or four percent of annual criminal proceeds in Europe, but they think it's growing. And I think in general, the fact that criminals other than cyber criminals seem to be using this, these cryptocurrencies for laundering criminal proceeds is, is, is definitely worrying. And it, again, ties back to sort of one of the things on regulators' lists of why they need to watch this space. Thanks, Sasha. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12. Next, we turn to who creates value in our economy. What are the most productive sectors in society? These are questions we should be constantly debating, according to a new book called The Value of Everything. And if we don't, it warns of the risks, increasing inequality and declining growth. Its author is Mariana Matsukato. She's a professor in the economics of innovation and public value at University College London. She's also advised political parties and international institutions. Our economics correspondent, Samea Keynes, asked Professor Matsukato to describe how society currently measures value. 
I will focus on how economists measure value because otherwise we could also talk about values and that would require us to go into philosophy. And so how economists measure value is through the prices of the goods and services that are produced. And this is a huge transformation from how value used to be thought about. Can you talk about the debates over what was productive and unproductive right at the beginning before we were even, as a society, measuring production at all? So, you know, some people thought that farmers were productive and other people thought that civil servants were unproductive. It's quite extraordinary that every body of economic thought has basically put civil servants and bureaucrats outside of what I call the production boundary. So let me just back up there. The production boundary, a concept that I talk about in the book, is this idea that some sectors and some activities and some actors in the economy are actually producing value, so they're productive, and those outside that boundary are unproductive. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be that they're responsible for circulating existing value, but it could also be that they're destroying value. So it could be, say, in modern-day times that we think of some elements in the financial sector, so those doing, say, credit default swaps as potentially being actually destructive of value. So what was quite striking was that the mercantilists, for example, so people like Gregory King and William Petty, they really focused on the productive nature of exchange. Exchange itself was productive, and so merchants and those who were also setting the terms of trade were incredibly important. And later in the 1700s, when the focus really was on the agricultural labor and the productivity of the land, the physiocrats, so people like uh, Canet and Turgot, focused on farm labor as being very productive. And then you might need merchants to move products that were produced in the land to the stores, but they weren't seen as actually creators of value. And then it was Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and Karl Marx from the mid-1700s to the end of the 1800s who kind of transformed that, and the focus became labor and industry and industrial production. And that's not a surprise, of course, because that was at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Is another way of thinking about this distinction between unproductive activity and productive activity to think about value creation and value extraction? Yes, and that's exactly the point of the book. And I also warn, um, quite starkly, I think, that when we no longer debate value, and this is really the point, that actually these big value debates of who's productive, who's not, who's in the boundary, who's not, has kind of disappeared because the theory of value we have today no longer is even called a theory of value. It's just called Econ 101. When that value debate goes missing then we risk actually rewarding value extraction over value creation because the problem is not actually value extraction in and of itself. It's that when this barrier, the production boundary, becomes invisible, then it's very easy for different elements of society to call themselves wealth creators or value creators and no one really knowing what to say. So policymakers especially might get conned into thinking that a particular actor is a wealth creator, but there's no real measure who's creating value, who's distributing it, and who potentially is destroying it. Could you give some examples of you know, ambiguous areas that some people might call value creation, that others might call value extraction? Sure. So an example would be that when you have finance that is not lending to the real economy, but it's just lending to other bits of the financial sector, something that I do think has happened and continues to happen, and Andy Haldane from the Bank of England has written quite a bit about this, or when you have finance that's too short-termist, even the venture capital sector itself, which is so exit-driven, wanting to exit through an IPO 
or a buyout, that doesn't necessarily create value because what innovation requires is long-term finance. And yet, just think of VC, they present themselves as wealth creators and value creators. So if we don't have that distinction, then again, we might end up with tax policies that try to incentivize venture capital financing, which actually isn't financing real value in the economy. And what about the tech sector? Well, the tech sector, I mean, if we think of the companies in Silicon Valley, just think of the motto of Google, you know, do no evil. And it's obviously that the idea is we do good. (laughs) And so this concept of good, you know, who's doing good, who's creating wealth, who's creating value has actually been used by the tech sector to lobby for very particular types of uh, policies around patents, around also the amount of tax they're paying through capital gains. And it's not just the tech sector, it's also the pharmaceutical industry. And I would combine both tech and pharma to put them in a category of firms that like to present themselves as very innovative. But in fact, they've been free riding on top of publicly funded technology for a very long time. You know, Google's algorithm was funded by the public sector. Everything that makes our iPhones smart, internet, touchscreen, GPS, Siri was all publicly financed. And that would be fine because free riding itself is not a bad thing as long as you admit it. But when you present yourself as a wealth creator, a value creator, the assumption is that somehow, you know, you're the most important, you're the hero, and everyone else is there just to facilitate you. And that's exactly how policymakers think. They think they're there enabling, facilitating, de-risking the tech firms and the pharmaceutical companies. And that has led to, I think, problematic types of innovation, problematic types of relationships, and it feeds inequality. So if the way that we measure value in terms of price is wrong now, what should we change? Should we start remeasuring GDP? Well, so there's many different implications, and that's why the book is probably too long. So let's just take the issue of price. When we think of pharmaceutical drugs, drugs that people actually need to survive, what should the price be? And we currently have something called value-based pricing, which the industry uses to uh, set prices, which is basically what the market will bear. What is the value that you would actually put to not having that drug? And interestingly, it's actually not linked back to costs. And so if we transform that to think that, first of all, prices should actually be more linked to the actual way that drugs are being produced, of which most of their marginal costs are almost zero, the actual pills themselves, but also reward the pharmaceutical companies, not necessarily through prices, but through other ways, for example, prizes, that would transform how such an important thing, which is how we distribute medicines to people and medicines actually We should think of them as human rights. So that would be an implication for prices of such an important product. But then GDP, I mean, we already know from feminist economists and environmental economists the dangers of only including goods and services with prices. So care at home is not valued in GDP, and many people have said we should, and there's different ways that one might account for it. Uh, When we don't care for the environment, we don't (laughs) include that in GDP. That's all very important, but what has been missing from the debate is also differentiating profits from rents. So currently, what we're actually including in GDP, let alone what we don't include, like care or happiness indicators that people have written about, what we include is quite problematic. And so if we actually distinguished, for example, that type of finance, which is actually creating value in the economy versus just allowing the whole sector to present itself as valuable, that would transform GDP. And it's quite extraordinary that up until the early 1970s, finance, most of finance wasn't included in GDP. It was actually seen as a transfer of existing value in the same way that social security benefits are not included in GDP. And then all of a sudden, it was. 
Why was that? Why wasn't finance included in GDP? Well, because actually it was, in fact, seen as a transfer. And then once the financial sector, financial intermediation, started to grow to the extent that it did, it became very awkward. They actually used that word, awkward. This was a system of national accounts people um, initially within the United Nations that were looking at how to account for production. And it was awkward that such a big part of the economy was actually not being counted in GDP. So they solved that by saying, well, we should just call it something, right? So so the value that's being produced by commercial banks, we can call that financial intermediation and the value that's being produced by investment banks, risk-taking, and we put a price to that. And so net interest payments, the difference between what banks charge in interest and what they pay in interest, it's, it's that portion, for example, that had not been included. What had been included was simply services, financial services that had a fee. For example, if you're going to buy, to get a mortgage, the fee that you're being charged by the mortgage provider was being included because it was very clear that there was a price to it. But that just shows, and I kind of go through this in the book with many other examples, that there's, it's almost idiosyncratic. I think I use the word hodgepodge, <laughs> which isn't necessarily bad. The economy, we should not forget, is not a natural science. It's not exposed to physical laws. It's a social science. How we think about the economy is is subject to political, economic, you know, social forces. So it's not really a criticism to say that GDP has evolved in this idiosyncratic way, but it is a criticism when I say that it's evolved sometimes in invisible ways, in ways that people can't engage with. So whereas in the older period, there was almost a more contested debate of who's valuable, who's not, who's productive, who's not. Today, because we no longer talk about it that way, anything with the price is seen as valuable. So Lloyd Blankfein was actually able to say, after the crisis in 2009, Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world because we have a tautology that as long as you're earning income and the price for that work, that is how we value you, then you are obviously productive, <laughs> right? So, and the opposite with government. Because we don't actually value government, we only include the salaries and the costs, not the value of the final output, then the opposite happens. It's almost impossible for government to present itself as productive using the accounting system. I think using price has one advantage, which is that it, it is kind of, in one sense, impersonal and doesn't require bureaucrats to make these kinds of value judgments on who is productive and who isn't. It's part of what you're saying that actually we're making these judgments just implicitly anyway, and so we need to start discussing those. It's almost that I'm saying both things. I'm saying that there's constant explicit declarations of who the wealth creators are, even the word wealth creation. It's used on the websites of the financial service companies. Even the Labour Party, after they lost the 2015 election, Tony Blair, I think the next day, wrote an article saying we lost because we didn't embrace the wealth creators, this idea that somehow the wealth creators are only in business, right? So these words are actually used, but they don't get challenged. They don't get challenged because, well, who is the wealth creator? Who's not? It's almost, you know, just in the eyes of the beholder. And modern-day neoclassical economics, which has a theory of value which is subjective based on prices, hence preferences, versus, say, in the classical economists where it was more objective, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's, it's wrong because that's also not what I'm trying to do in the book to say this is the right value theory, we have the wrong value theory. It's more to say that when we no longer have the debate and actually call the current neoclassical theory of value a theory of value, different from other theories of value, then it's no longer contested. And what's really interesting is that value then left the economics departments and went to the business schools. So shareholder value, shared value, value chains is actually the way that businesses talk, but it's kind of a fuzzy 
often flaky term. And when economists stop talking about it, and yet economists obviously have huge power over how things happen, for example, in treasuries, how we think about austerity, how we think about the ideal size of government, how we think about how to incentivize companies through different types of government policies. And economists have a huge influence on that. If they don't have a serious dynamic interaction with the economic theories, plural, of value, they can get captured very easily along the way. Mariana, thank you very much. Thank you. Let us know what you think. Who is a wealth creator? Which is the sector creating the most value in our society? Should the debate about value move back to the economics department from business schools? We'd love to hear from you via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, when you think of denim jeans, one brand springs to mind, Levi's. Iconic pictures of James Dean and his 501s and the Bruce Springsteen cover of Born in the USA. Well, after a period in the doldrums, the company has really turned things around. Our US business editor, Vijay Vaithiswaran, is on the line. Vijay, I'm so out of touch with fashion that I didn't even know that they weren't cool for a while and now they're cool again. So perhaps you could go back a bit for me. Sure. There was a time a couple of decades ago when Levi's had revenues of some $7 billion. It was bigger than Nike, but it fell on some hard times. Partly self-imposed, the company binged on debt and, and made some bad decisions in terms of how it treated wholesale customers like retailers and so on. It, also, the denim cycle, there's, uh, as in all commodity products in a way, denim also has a certain cycle related to fashion. And what's happened in the last couple of years is quite interesting because denim is back in fashion, but the company has also done some very smart things, uh, better management and clever marketing that have, that have put it back on top. So it's not just a question of it riding the cycle. It's actually caught the wave and gone further than the wave, so to speak. That's right. And uh, among other things, um, a, a newish management team has uh, reduced debt. They've made some smart investments growing beyond the traditional men's trousers, the denims that we're all familiar with, improving their uh, quality of offering for women, for example. Their tops, they call it the batwing top, but the, the Levi's tops that we've probably seen on the streets of uh, Europe and Asia and America are, they've sold 4 million of those in the last year, doubling their numbers from the previous year. So they're extending into products, not just the, the basic Levi's denims that we would have thought about, And in terms of marketing, they've really caught a cultural moment. Our hip audience members would know that Beyonce, the superstar, made quite a splash at Coachella, a music festival in California a few weeks ago. They would have also noticed that she was wearing high-rise Levi's cut-off shorts without any kind of paid endorsement from the company. It was caught a moment and went viral. It's just a a sign that the once dowdy brand of jeans, perhaps, uh, is now quite hip. So for those of us who don't really want to wear high-rise cut-off shorts, what are Levi's best offerings at the moment then? So, of course, uh, they've got a whole range of uh, jeans, as you'd expect, uh, dungarees. Uh, What's interesting is another one of the clever things the company has done is when confronted with the so-called athleisure trend of yoga pants and other stretchy tight fabrics, uh, Lululemon is the brand that comes to mind that's been pioneering that trend. Rather than fall for that fashion and try to come up with their own uh, stretchy uh, yoga pants, Levi's which would have looked silly, let's be honest, uh, you're trying to walk around with Levi's yoga pants. They instead introduced stretchier fabrics into their uh, women's jeans, for example, and they left their old archaic way of numbering their jeans, only 501s or other numbers that uh, they still kept the numbers, but now they'll explain helpfully these are skinny fit or these are you know wide fit, boot cut. And so they, they've made some pragmatic changes to, that appeal to a wider audience, a younger audience, and in particular, 
their women's sales are growing, their online sales are growing, and their international sales are growing quite fast. So as one analyst I spoke with said, uh, they're firing on all cylinders. Any lessons that other companies, not necessarily fashion companies, might learn from this turnaround? I think with traditional companies that have been around a long time, it's important, yes, to look to new trends, but ultimately to stick to your knitting. I think that's the lesson of Levi's. Thanks, BJ. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Economist.